Welcome to a Bible study with Archie Gilmer. I am Archie Gilmer, the preaching minister at Oak Grove Christian Church in Arden, North Carolina. This podcast is intended to provide sound biblical teaching for your spiritual growth. Now let's get into the Bible study. So, uh, okay, we're in uh, chapter 8 of Mark. This will be part 2 of chapter 8. Jesus is trying to get the disciples to understand some things and they're having a hard time understanding it and he's trying to have some patience with them and then he heals a man of his blindness and uses that healing as a teaching tool for them and shows us all that being able to see the Lord and being able to see the gospel and being able to see God for who he is is a progressive type thing where we grow into it and we learn more and more and as we grow we see things more and more clearly along the way so the same would be true for the disciples so the same would be true for all of us and praise the lord god has patience jesus is patient with them and god has grace and mercy so let's pick up where we left off have a word of prayer and then we'll get into chapter 8 verse 27 of mark lord we love you and we thank you for the day i thank you for the time that we uh, we can set aside, set aside to study your word and once again be blessed with your truth. Help us, Lord, to dismiss everything else and just focus on what we're reading and see what you have for us and help us to apply it. Help us to not only apply it to our lives, but help others to apply it to their lives as well. And that we would uh, go into the world and present this truth faithfully. We love you and we thank you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As I said before, uh, Jesus... Um, in verse 18 of chapter 8, he's asking them questions, the disciples, because they, they're still confused. And he's just saying, having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? Ba- referring to all the miracles and all the teachings and all the great things that have happened. Even the things that they were involved in. And he's saying, are you not paying attention? He's basically telling them, you're capable of seeing this. You're capable of hearing this truth. You're capable of understanding it. You've seen it. You had, you've been a witness to it. So just look at what's going on. And then he tells them, he reminds them when he broke the five loaves and, the five, and fed 5,000. And then when he fed the 4,000. And he says, do you still not understand? All right. And then he implored them. Or they implored him to heal this blind man. They brought this blind man and he uses it. He uses the blind man and the healing of the blind man as an illustration to show them a picture of themselves, basically, right? The man was blind and I think uh, deaf or moot, and he heals those ailments of this man and he's showing the disciples that you are this man spiritually. You're blind, you can't see, you're not able to see, but I have, I have interacted with you and I have touched you and you're, you're seeing like figures that are moving around, but you're not really sure what it is. But you're still looking intently, right? Remember in verse 25, he, he, it says that in verse 25 of chapter 8, it says, Then again he laid hands on his eyes, the, the blind man, and he looked intently and was restored and began to see everything clearly. The man, it's, it's important to notice that it says the man looked intently. And if we're looking to see things for the way they are as far as God and his kingdom and our Savior and the truth of God's word, who we are in Christ, the gospel, everything that comes around and goes with it, we have to look intently into the word of God. We have to look intently into the Lord for wisdom. We have to intend to gain some truth. So that's kind of where we left off. And once we do that, we'll see because God doesn't hide himself from us. We'll be able to see clearly according to this example. Now, here we are in verse 27, chapter 8. Things are going to change a little bit. They're just continuing on the journey. Jesus is still with the disciples. He's still teaching them. It says, Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea, Philippi. And on the way, he questioned his disciples, saying to them, who do people say that I am? You know, when you're traveling in a car with somebody or walking, taking a, a walk with somebody, generally, you're going to have some kind of conversation about something some most times it's casual conversations sometimes it's real conversations in, uh, or, or personal conversations or uh of, of the or some kind of conversation so here's the conversation on this journey that jesus starts with his disciples he's saying who do people say that i am 
And I think that he knows that they already know the answer to this. He, and we all know that Jesus knows the answer to this. It's just a conversation starter to get to the real question. He's like, who do people say that I am? And they said, verse 28, they told him saying, John the Baptist and others say Elijah, but others, one of the prophets. Those are the answers that they gave because that's what people did think. They thought that it was really John the Baptist and, then, and he, didn't get, he didn't die or it wasn't true that he got killed. They thought maybe he was Elijah who, and if you read through Old Testament scripture, the scriptures talk about how Elijah will come before the Messiah or one like Elijah. And then it talks about uh, one of, uh, maybe he's just one of the prophets, another prophet that has come into the world as God had been in the habit of doing throughout the Old Testament. Or maybe, maybe, they, maybe some people saw him even as one of the, uh, I don't know if they would have saw him as one of the Pharisees, but they would have saw him as a rabbi for sure because he went around teaching folks and people listened to him. And then verse 29 says this, and he continued by questioning them, but who do you say that I am? And this is a pretty significant place in scripture. I, I think it's a useful tool in preaching about salvation, uh, leading other people in conversation about knowing Jesus, or at least evaluating what we personally think about Jesus. Because we can, anybody can say or repeat what any preacher says, or they can repeat what any congregation or denomination says about who Jesus is, or anybody can just make up who they want Jesus to be, and many do. But this is important for these disciples because they're going to they're going to be the ones that Jesus uses to, to start the church. As we know it today, to begin the mission of making disciples around the world after his death, burial and resurrection. So he needs to he needs not he, need, he doesn't need to know for himself. He already knows who they say he is. He needs them to know who they say he is. And he needs them to say it out loud so that they are aware of what they think about Jesus. It's almost like the elephant in the room by this point between him and the disciples. Right? Because he's just questioning him. He's like, how come y'all don't see by now? How come y'all aren't, you know, I just did all these miracles. I fed all these people. I cast out those demons. I've been teaching about the kingdom of God. Do you still not, are you not able to get it? So who do you think I am? What, I mean, let's just talk about this. And, he, and he's not challenging them in a negative way to knock them down. He wants, him, he wants these guys to know exactly who he is. It's imperative if they're going to be disciple makers. So Peter, in his usual fashion, in the rest of verse 29, Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. Period. There's a period in this version of the Bible. You are the Christ. That's what Peter said. And for a change... Peter wasn't long-winded. He, he just made a statement of fact. He made it plain. And he made it out of his own understanding and his own belief. You are the Christ. Awesome moment for Peter. Awesome moment for the disciples. Because now somebody's said it out loud to each other. And he said it like he's known it the whole time, it seems like. Which is not true. <laughs> But it seems like he's like, well, you're the Christ. Duh. Verse 30 says, and he warned them to tell no one about him. Right? Because he wanted them to say, you are the Christ. He wanted that conversation to end that way. With, okay, let's talk about this. I am who? You are the Christ. Okay, now, don't go off telling people about this conversation. Why is that? It, it, again, Jesus is trying to keep his identity limited to whoever he wants it to be for the moment because it's not time for everyone to know that he's the Christ. Constantly throughout the scriptures, throughout the gospels, we're seeing that God had a plan in place and there was a time for every part of it to play out. And if we think about that and we get this little side note here, 
that when God is working out a plan, his plan, he's got a schedule of events that are going to happen. And there's a time for everything to happen. And it's not going to happen before. It's not going to happen after. God's not ever late. He's not ever early. He's always on his time. The biggest struggle that we have as believers is continuing to conform to his timing. Because sometimes things in, in our lives and things in this world are so powerful in regards to how we feel and what we think and how it, the things affect us, that we begin to come, become impatient. We begin to suffer a little bit sometimes. Or we get too excited, like Peter does often. Peter gets in, tr in trouble be a lot because he gets excited about what could be happening and who Jesus really is. So I don't really fault him. It's just that he has no self-control, it seems like. So he gets himself in trouble. But he says, look, don't tell anybody, verse 30. How can you tell, how can you reveal yourself as the Christ, the Son of God, right? God in the flesh, right? How can you reveal that to a person and just say, don't, go, don't tell nobody though? And then how do you be that person who Jesus said that to and just sit back and say, oh, okay, yeah, it's between me and you. There ain't no way. There ain't no way. Because when you and I met Jesus and he, and he became the savior of our world, of our life, and we were saved, we committed ourselves to him and we uh, submitted to his way. We repented and we're baptized, we're forgiven of our sin. All that stuff happened. There's no way we can contain that and not go and tell the world what we know about Jesus. So it seems silly that Jesus would say that to them. But since Jesus was saying it, it can't be silly <laughs> because it's Jesus. There's a reason. I don't think the guys understood this reason, but Jesus told them. And it's not that Jesus told him too early because God's timing is perfect. Jesus understands what he's doing. He knows what's happening. He knows what they need, when they need it. He also knows that they can't handle it even if it's time for them to get it. Oftentimes the Lord gives us things that's part of what he's doing in our life and we seem to not be able to handle it completely. And that's, and that's okay because we're talking about God here. We're talking about the difference between man and God. And this, this particular part of scripture always reminds me of the fact that I'm on a need to know basis with God about everything. And it's mostly because I can't, I can't be trusted with the whole plan all at once because I would doubt it. It would probably kill, it would probably overwhelm me and I'd stroke out or I would start arguing with God and tell him how to do it better. I'm not bragging about that, it's just true. So God gives me what I need, when I need it, how I need it, for what purposes I need it for. In all parts of life and ministry. Verse 30, he says more to them. He says, and he warned them to tell no one about him. Verse 31, he says, and he began to teach them. This is going to get serious for these guys. They're, gonna, they're, they're getting ready to get a knot in their mind because they're not going to understand this. He says, uh, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So Jesus is walking along and he says, who do you think I am? Who do you say I am? And of course, Peter, being the leader of the group with his mouth mostly, says, you're the Christ. And he says, okay, let, we've established that fact. Here's what's gonna happen to the Christ. Here's what's going to happen to the Son of Man. He, he starts preaching the gospel to him. That's what he does. He says, I'm, it's gonna, the Son of Man is going to suffer. He's going to be rejected by all of the leadership, not just one part of the leaders of the world, all of the religious leaders, all of the people in the, in the, in the community. And he, it gets worse, he says, and be killed, which is is definitely not going to line up with what every one of those disciples were thinking about Jesus. Even Peter, who said, you're the Christ. Because in their mind, they're thinking, Jesus is going to rise up to be the king of the Jews, and he's going to conquer the world, even the Romans. So when he says, and be killed, already in their mind, they're rejecting this. 
That can't happen because we know what you're here for. That can't happen because in our minds we have plans for you. So, and most of y'all in here know me, and I've talked about my son and his birth and all the plans I had for him before he was born. I mean, we had matching race cars, like all the same color, one number off from each other, same name on it. We were going to be racing together for the rest of our lives. And then he was born with that disability, and that was all in the trash. And that's, and that's what's happening with these disciples. They have big plans for Jesus, right? They got big dreams and hopes about what's going to happen because Jesus is here now. And he says this to them. He says, I'm going to be rejected by all the religious leaders. I'm going to be rejected by the community and I'm going to be killed. And all of the all of the air just went out of their balloon. When he said that. And then he says something else. He says, and after three days, we'll rise again. And they, they, there's no way they ever saw that statement coming from him because they don't know what he's talking about to start with. Him being killed. Because it's not matching up with what they think is going to happen. What think, they think is supposed to happen. And he's saying, I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be killed. And after three days, I'm going to rise again. I, I imagine if I'm in their shoes, I may not have even heard that last statement clearly. Or it may not have gotten my attention because I'm still caught up in the fact that he's going to be killed. But then it's like an on the way homer. Like later you sit back and say, wait, what did he mean? What do you mean he's going to rise again after three days? What, that, what is that all about? Of course, I'm still ticked off because he said he's going to be killed. If I'm just imagining myself in their shoes. Verse 32 says, and he was stating the matter plainly. He didn't make it like a puzzle to figure out or some kind of rhyme or some kind of, uh, what do you call it, nurse, uh, what, uh, nursery rhyme or something. He, it, wasn't, it wasn't something confusing. He just said it plain. The son of man, me, I'm going, to be, I'm going to be rejected and I'm going to be killed and then I'm going to come back. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Sometimes, man, if Peter would just sit there and be quiet, he would be awesome. But almost every time he does something else. He says something awesome and then he just won't stop. And he just steps one more step in the wrong direction. He comes over. Imagine, y'all, walking up to Jesus the person whom you just said is the Christ. And you pull him off to the side. You're going to call him into a meeting to rebuke him. How does that work? How does that happen? Oh, you're the Christ. And then when he starts talking about his future, then you pull him aside and said, hey, we probably shouldn't talk like that, Jesus, because them guys are taking you serious. You know this is not going to happen. You're making everybody mad. I'm not having it. He began to rebuke him. Now, I have to believe from what I've learned about Peter throughout the scripture that even when Peter does something crazy like this, it's because he loves Jesus. He's passionate about Jesus. There is, hard, there is never any malice in his heart when it comes to these wrong things, these, these out of line things or these crazy things that Peter gets involved in, but he's rebuking the son of God, right? And... I had to stop reading and I had to stop thinking about the rest of this for just a moment at this point. And I had to sit back and say to myself, how, how many times in my Christian walk have I took Jesus aside and rebuked him? How often do I do this? Because when it says Peter rebuked him, Peter's saying, Peter is just simply pulling Jesus aside and speaking against what Jesus just said. Jesus just made a statement of truth about the future of his life and God's plan and Peter decides to speak against that. And I wonder, I just wonder, and I asked the Lord to help me with it, how many times have I spoken against God's plan for my life or God's plan for the church or God's plan for my involvement in someone else's spiritual growth? Or God's plan for the world, for that matter. And not even realized it. Not even realized that that's what I'm doing. 
Not even realizing that if Jesus were here at the times that I might do those things, that he would say to me what he's about to say to Peter, which is the rest of verse 33. Well, all of verse 30, starting in verse 33, says, but turning around and seeing his disciples. Now, look what happened. He's, he's, Peter pulled him aside and they're face to face. He's talking to Peter. Peter says these things to him, starts rebuking him. And then Jesus turns around and sees the disciples that were behind him which means he turned his back on Peter in that moment. He's got to look at, he's looking at the disciples, but he, that means he's also, now Peter's behind him. And he says, he re, look, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. Every time I read this scripture, every time I study this part of scripture, the hair on my arms and my neck stand up. Because what if Jesus were to have to say those things to me? I can't even imagine how Peter might have felt. Because think about Peter, what Peter's doing. He's, he loves Jesus. And he feels committed to Jesus. So much so that he's willing to say, I think you're the Christ. I, I believe you're the Christ. And then when Jesus starts talking uh, negatively in his mind, saying that, okay, he's going to be killed, that doesn't go along with the plan. So Peter feels, naturally feels like he's got to stand up for the plan. And then Jesus turns around and rebukes him and calls him, seems to call him Satan. That would hurt my feelings. Like I don't spend a whole lot of time with my feelings hurt, you know, like some people in the world do, but there are some things that do hurt my feelings. And if Jesus refers to me as Satan or seems to call me Satan, it would hurt my feelings that he would, one, that it would have to happen, that he would have to say that to me. And two is because it's Jesus that would have to say that to me. Because don't you want Jesus to be pleased with you? Don't you want God the Father to be pleased with you? That's what we're all after, isn't it? Well done, good and faithful servant. Well, that's the opposite of this statement, isn't it? And here's Peter thinking he's doing the right thing. He's like, he got the first answer right. You guys remember Arnold Horshack? That's, that's Peter sometimes. He's like, ooh, 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 I know the answer, ooh. And then he gives the answer and it's the right answer and he's all proud of himself. And then he gets too proud. He starts saying other things and now he's out in the hallway getting reprimanded. He says, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. And I was looking over this and I was remembering what, we're, what the scripture we're looking at on Sunday mornings here in this church and verse 2 of chapter 12 in Romans, screaming out in my mind here. Because it says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So that you will understand the will of the Lord. So you will be able to know the will of God. And he's saying to Peter, get behind me. You're not setting your mind on God's interest. You're not in line with God's will. I just told you what God's will is. And you come immediately come up against it and start speaking against it. So you're not, you're, you're disrupting. You're against the Lord in this moment. We have to be, we have to be as believers, as Christians, as followers of Christ, people who are trying to be like Christ. We have to, we have to be diligent and be committed to finding God's will and being in agreement with it. Even when we don't understand it even when it doesn't make sense, and especially, especially when it doesn't line up with what our plans are for our lives, for this church, for disciple-making, or for your involvement in someone else's life. Because if we don't, if we insist on God adjusting his plan according to our thoughts or desires, we find ourselves in Peter's shoes, where we will be rebuking the will of God. And, and not even knowing it most of the time. But just because we don't know we're doing it doesn't mean we're not guilty of it. And just because we don't know we're doing it doesn't mean that God wouldn't have the same reaction to it as he did with Peter here in this particular part of the scripture. So it's a very valuable lesson that Peter learned here. And thank God that Peter was able to learn that lesson and somebody was able to write it down so we could learn from it. So we wouldn't make the same mistake. This is all about being in the will of God. It's all about God and his kingdom. It's all about what God has in store because we've already proven from Adam all the way to now that our plans don't work. Our ideas will always offend God at some point. 
our way is always the wrong way at some point. They might work out for a little while, but at some point they'll fail. It's why we need Jesus. It's why what Jesus said in verse 31 about the, the son of man must suffer and things, uh, suffer uh, many things and be rejected by, many el- by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. That all had to happen because our plans fail. Our desires are sinful. So as far as solving the problem and fulfilling God's promise that's found in Genesis chapter three, after Adam and Eve had sinned and God had promised that he would fix the problem, that's Jesus proclaiming the solution to the problem. And there's Peter right away standing up, pulling him aside like he's got to educate Jesus a little bit and say, Jesus, you don't understand what you're saying. No, we're not going to let that happen. Who knows how the conversation went, but he's rebuking Jesus like, don't be talking like that. And Jesus is like, no, 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 you don't talk like that because this is the will of God. And your mind and your heart is not in, in line with God's interests. Your mind and your heart in this moment is only in line with man's interests, your interests. Because their interest was that he would become the king of the Jews. We know that because people keep, the whole, all these crowds that keep coming around him, keep trying to forcefully take him and make him king. Because that's man's plan. Our plans are, uh, especially before we're saved and even sometimes after we're saved, our plans are many times wrapped up in this world and how to get ahead in this world and how to succeed in this world and how to win in this world. And if we're going to be children of God, if we're going to be disciples of Christ, we have to be about the kingdom of God. And that's the issue. Verse 34, and he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, so he calls over the whole crowd, calls everybody over, and he starts teaching them. He says, and this is not a new lesson. This is the same lesson. He's already ta- taught the heart. He, he called the disciples. He said, who do, I, who, am I, who do you say I am? And they had the right answer. And then he says some truth. And then they reject that. Peter rejects it. He has to correct Peter in front of the disciples. And now he's going to teach the whole crowd about this. If anyone, look, he says, if anyone wishes to come after me, verse 34, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. There's three things there. Well, four things. If anyone wishes to come after me, First, you have to desire to follow him, to go after him. You have to, fire, you have to desire to be like him. You have to desire to walk the way he walked. You have to desire it. Nobody's going to get saved unless they want to get saved. Nobody is going to be forced to be saved. Nobody's going to be forced to receive God's forgiveness. Nobody's going to be forced to repent. Nobody's going to be forced to do anything. You have to want what God is offering. So that's the first thing. He said, if anybody wishes to come out to me, here's what, here's what has to happen. First, you have to deny yourself. And I think a lot of people have some wrong understandings of what that means. I think there can be unlimited amounts of def- definitions as to what it means to, de- to deny yourself. I think what Jesus is saying, he's saying, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to be like me, if you're going to be my disciple, you need to not be the king of your kingdom. It cannot be about you anymore. It can't be about what you want. It can't be about what you are building. It can't be about your dreams. And, and that's what the issue was. They were wanting, they, they saw Jesus, if he is the Christ, then he's going to be the king of the Jews and he's going to uh, solve the issues of around the world between the Jews and the rest of the world. And they're going to become a great nation and they're going to have success in the world. And that's their plan. That's what they dreamed of. That's what they talked about. That's even what they prayed about. And Jesus is saying, you've got to get rid of all that in your mind and in your heart. It cannot be about your dreams and your plans. It's got to be about God and his kingdom. It can't be about your kingdom. And then he says, you have to take up your cross. This is right in line with what he just said in verse 31. It says, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. You remember when Jesus was tempted after he was baptized by John the Baptist? And he went into the wilderness and he was tempted uh, three times. All of those temptations that were thrown at him were temptations for him to act selfishly and think about his own self. Every single one of them. And Satan is always tempting people that way. Same thing with Adam and Eve. It was always about, surely God just doesn't want you to have what you want. Surely God doesn't want you to be like him. You can do this. God doesn't, just doesn't want you to, to know about this. And it's, and it's the same thing for all of us. 
The temptation is to try to have our cake, our sin, and have and eat it at the same time. We want to have sin and salvation at the same time, and Satan's trying to get us to think about self to where we justify everything so that self feels good and we can and self can also can be with God and also be king or queen of our kingdoms at the same time and it doesn't work you have to deny yourself you have to give up your throne to your kingdom and you have to take up your cross meaning if you're going to be like Jesus and it's not going to be about you because when Jesus was in the world it wasn't about him was it he was always walking around saying my father this and my father that and my father's kingdom this and my father's kingdom that it was always about the kingdom in fact, everything about Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection was about me and you. So if we're going to be like Jesus, then it can't be about self. And we have to know that we're going to suffer in many ways when we're being like that. Some people, some people see the take up my cross as, I've heard, I've heard a lot of folks say when they have some sickness or some kind of, I don't know, cancer or some kind of disease or something that's just come on them and it's just a, a lifelong struggle. And they're like, well, I'm taking up my cross. No, this is not, taking up your cross is not something that happens to you. Taking up your cross is something that you choose to do. Just like Jesus chose to do it for us. He chose to carry the cross because he knew that that was the only way that we could receive forgiveness for our sins. So it's not, it's not the sufferings that happen in the world because the world is full of sin and, you know, and sometimes things happen to us that are out of our control. They happen to us. That's not what it means to take up your cross. What it means is proclaim yourself to be a Christian. Say that you believe that Jesus is the Christ. Say that you're living a life that you're trying to live like Jesus and you, you need to be unapologetically a follower of Christ and let the persecution come. Do not be ashamed of who you are in Christ. Because people are going to hate you or people are going to persecute you or people are going to act bad toward you. You're going to suffer for being a Christian. And you need to choose to take, that, take up that cross. Because when Jesus was carrying the cross, literally, to his death, it was because he is the Christ. That's why he suffered. If he was just any other criminal, it wouldn't have been a big ordeal like it was. They wouldn't have hated him like they did. I mean, they might, have, they might have hated him because he's a criminal, but not the whole world. The whole world hated this man. Even the ones just a few uh, days earlier were singing Hosanna when he's come riding into town on, on a donkey. They even hated him. They even rejected him. You're going to get rejected because you're like Christ. But he says you have to first... If you, if you desire anyone who wishes to come after me to do it, just do it. Deny yourself. Leave yourself. Abandon self. Take up your cross. Step into being like Jesus. He says, follow me. Do what I do. Walk like I walk. Talk like I talk. Be about the Father's business. There's a cross to bear in the, in the Christian life. And we all know, in this Bible study, we all know that it's worth it, isn't it, in the end? Because the rewards are greater than the suffering, according to Romans chapter 12. So look what else he says. Verse 35. He's, he continues on in this same point. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life may, uh, uh, for my sake, and the gospels will save it. So he, he, it, now it seems like he's talking in riddles. But he really isn't. It's really simple. It really is Jesus talking plain to folks. But if it, the only question is, are we looking intently into what he's saying? Only the ones of us who look intently into what he's teaching will actually see clearly as to what he's saying. If we're not intently looking for the truth of what he's saying, we're not going to get it. We're not going to hear it. We won't have ears to hear. It. And we're going to be just like some of the other people that are uh, in, the, in the scriptures, totally rejecting everything that he teaches because we don't want it. And it's because we're not looking intently into what he's saying. He said, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. It goes in line with what he just said in verse 35. Uh, I mean, in verse 34. If, if you want to be like me, if you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself. If you want to live, you have to deny yourself. If you want to have a, a life, you've been told to get a life. I mean, that, that'll preach, y'all. It will. You need to get a life because until you get saved, you're dead. 
you don't have life. Look, it's, he's, he's like, if you wish to save your life, because he's saying, if anyone wishes to come after me, verse 34, now he's saying, if you wish to save your life, he's associating the two things together. If you want to go with me, you want to be like me, then that must mean you want to save your life. So therefore, you must give it up. If you want to live, give it up. And he's making reference to eternal life versus the life you have in this world. You cannot be a believer and you cannot have eternal life with Jesus in the presence of our Holy Father if you don't surrender yourself here in this world. It cannot be all about you. It's got to be about the Lord. But whoever, look, whoever loses his life for my sake, now he's talking about the suffering, right? The taking up of the cross, the walking like Jesus did, and he suffered greatly and he was killed. Well, he gave up his life is a better way to put it. He says, but whoever loses his life, look, for my sake and for the gospel's sake, will save it. This is, he's still preaching the gospel. I mean, he's still preaching the gospel. He's saying, if you don't surrender to my way, you will never have life. You're already dead. And if you lose your life, if you give yourself over to the gospel, you give yourself over to the will of God, you give yourself over to Jesus, then you will say your life will be saved. You'll have salvation. That's the only way to have salvation. And I think, I think over many generations, I think many of people who have come before other believers and said, I believe that Jesus is the Christ and I don't want to die and go to hell. I want to be saved. I think their hearts are genuine and I, I think that they're probably saved. But the problem is, is they never understood what it's all about. Not really. Because if we only get saved so that we don't go to hell, then we're missing it. Jesus didn't just die so we wouldn't go to hell. That's not the only reason that Jesus died on the cross. Jesus died on the cross so that God would have our hearts. That we would be totally surrendered to him and become not only servants of the kingdom of God, but family, sons and daughters, ambassadors to the kingdom. There is a, there is a spot at the king's table with your name on it. The question is, is are you RSVP or not? Are you claiming your reservation? That's the real question. Are you, are you genuinely part of the family of God? If you are, then guess what that means? It means that everybody that's at the table with the Lord, everybody who's got that spot on their table claimed, everybody who's saved, everybody who understands what this is about, we have said to ourselves, self needs to go. Because this person now is all about the Lord. And the, and the amazing thing, the awesome thing about that is, is God, all of every person that God has ever created who submits to that, God will use in amazing ways for his kingdom in all different walks of life, all different parts of life, all different ages, all different personalities, all different talents, all different gifts, all different parts of the world. That's what God does. And you and I, who are believers, we get to be a part of all of that. So anybody who sits back and says, well, I believe, I said I believe that Jesus is the Christ. And I went to a church and they told me I was saved. So I'm saved. And we just go about our business after that. Never, ever, ever saying another word to God about anything. It's a terrible, bad misunderstanding of what this is about. And he's making... He's making sure, absolutely sure, that Peter and the rest of these disciples totally get every chance to understand what this is about. Because the future of the church depends on it. And he's saying to them so much that it's like, look, Peter, this is not about the Jewish nation. This is not about even the Roman nation. It's not about the entire world as a nation and the plans of this world. This is about what my father is doing. And it's only about that. And that is God's will. The, this, this is how I try to make it simple for myself. This is all God's will. And his will be done on earth as it is in heaven, no matter what I say, think, or believe. I can either get on with it or I can get out of the way of it and totally miss out. That's totally my choice. But if I don't get in line with God's will then I might as well be dead because I won't live for eternity with him if I can't find my way into his will. 
I don't really have to look hard because Jesus is trying to show them this is the way into his will. I'm showing you by the way that I'm living in this world. You come and live like me. You follow me. You deny yourself. You take up your cross. You do what I do. If you want to live, you give it all up. And you give it all up for the sake of the gospel. Verse 36 says, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? He who dies with the most toys wins, right? I know a lot of, I know a lot of folks that live that way and really believe that. And most of those people that I know that believe that way have no relationship whatsoever with God. There's a few of those people that I know that say those things. They, th they just say it like it's a joke. But there's a lot of people that live this way because they believe there's nothing happening after they leave this world. And if that were true, which we all know it's not, but if it were, then we'd all live that way, wouldn't we? What's stopping us from being just like pirates and just go do what we want and who cares how it affects anybody? Because if there's nothing that happens after this world, what causes us to do right? What causes us to know right? What causes us to be moral, to know morality if God isn't real? Because if God isn't real and he didn't create us, then there's no morality and there's no good, there's no right, there's no wrong. There's no bad, there's nothing. You be you and I'll be me and who, last man standing, right? It's stupid, it's, it's dumb to think that way. Because the truth is right here. It's all about eternity. It's all about God and his kingdom. It's all about his plan to reconcile all of his creation to himself should they desire to be with him. And notice, it's, he's constantly saying, whoever wishes, whoever wishes, if it is your desire, because God's not going to force himself on you and he's not going to force you on, he's not going to force you to love him. It has to be your choice. Because if you're going to chase after the things of this world, if you think you're going to gain the whole world and, and, and riches are your thing and that's what makes you uh, important, then uh, it says you're forfeiting your soul. You're already dead. It's a sad case. Verse 37 says, For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Who's got, who can afford to buy his own soul back? A man, could have, a man could own, literally own the entire planet and everything in it and still not have enough to purchase his soul from the Lord. That's what he's saying. You can't afford it. God is the only one that can make it happen. You can't afford it. You can't earn it. You can't create it. Verse 38, look, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in, the, in this, look, adulterous and sinful generation, whoever's ashamed of me and my words, he's talking to Peter again, because Peter pulled him aside and rebuked him quietly. It's like, look, we, we don't like that kind of, that's negative talk there, Jesus. That don't fit the plan here. And he's like, look, I'm speaking truth. And if you're ashamed of that, then guess what? The son of man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. I would refer you after you read that particular part of scripture to go to the book of Hebrews. And read the book of Hebrews where it says that because of Jesus and his sacrifice, because he is the high priest forever, then the door to the throne of God is wide open for all who would want to come before him. And, and you, we can come before him boldly. We can come before him boldly because we're covered by the blood of Christ. And it also draws pictures about how Jesus is the high priest and he speaks on behalf of the saints to the Father. When, when the father sees us, Jesus is right there saying, yeah, we know that one because that one looks like me. That one is covered with my blood. We know that one. And if another comes that doesn't know Jesus and has rejected Jesus, then Jesus is not going to speak on behalf of that one. We don't know that one. That one there doesn't look like me. That one there has rejected me. So no, I'm not vouching for him or her. And that's what he's saying. If you're ashamed of me, or my words, if you're ashamed to be associated with me, if you're ashamed to call yourself a Christian, if you're ashamed to say you're a follower of Christ, if you're ashamed to let the world know that you believe, or if you're, if you're hiding the word of God, if you don't speak up about the word of God, if you're ashamed to read the word of God, if you're ashamed, if you're ashamed to deny yourself in front of the whole world and say, I'm going the way of the Lord, then Jesus can't stand before God and say, yeah, we know that person. And it isn't because he wants, doesn't want to, it's because he cannot. Because there's, a, there's an offer in place 
that involves both parties being willing to partake in this relationship. God has already proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that he's willing to love us. So much so that he brought Jesus to the cross. So much so that he suffered many things. He was rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and he was killed. And three days later, he came out of the grave alive, proving that he is the Messiah, he is the Christ, proving that he loves us. So really, the only question that remains for eternity, or at least until Jesus comes back, is do we love him? Do we love him so much that we would deny ourselves, that we would take up our cross, and that we would follow in his ways for the sake of the gospel and for his sake? Have you ever thought about what it means to live your life for his sake, for Jesus' sake? I see it as living my life in such a way that it's not wasting what Jesus did on the cross for me. In other words, everything I do has to be for the glory of God because that's why Jesus died. That's why he gave up his life. So that I would have not only opportunity to be forgiven, not only opportunity to be in the presence of the Father again for eternity, but also so I can live in this world and represent the kingdom and be a testimony of what happened on the cross to the world. And doesn't he deserve that much? Doesn't his sacrifice and his suffering and his rejection, his death, burial, and resurrection all by his own will, doesn't it deserve that much? That we would forsake our own selves, take up our own cross, and, and do everything that the scriptures teaches us to do with the help of the Holy Spirit to, to, to live lives the way Jesus lived. That's the lesson for Peter, right? And Peter never saw it coming. These guys are just walking to the next town. He never saw this coming. I mean, he just, thought, he just answering questions. Yeah, I think you're to Christ. And then this serious conversation comes up that just totally rocks his mind. And then the next thing you know, Jesus is referring to him as Satan. And, you know, really, he, Jesus wasn't calling Peter Satan. Jesus was actually talking to Satan. While at the same time giving Peter a lesson that if you're going to be the mouth of Satan, if you're going to let Satan influence you and let him work in your life to where you speak against the Lord's will, then I'm going to turn my back on you. Not because Jesus didn't love Peter. It's because Jesus is the son of God and he doesn't answer to Satan. He doesn't, he doesn't react. He doesn't, no, Satan doesn't tell Jesus what to do. And Peter really, really needed to understand this. So much so that he had to get his feelings hurt a bit over it. I, 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 can, I, can, I, can, I can suspect with almost 100% certainty that Peter never forgot this moment in his life. And I say almost 100% because later we know that Jesus was standing at the campfire after Jesus was, was arrested. And, he's, and they're like, hey, don't you know Jesus? And like, I don't know him. I don't know that guy. It was almost like he had forgotten everything that was just said right here because of the fear and the anxieties. And we sit back and we can, we can judge Peter all day long if we want to. Shake our head and roll our eyes and say, stupid Peter, should have known better. The reality is, is we all struggle with all of this. We all struggle with all of this. And it's my prayer that Jesus doesn't have to rebuke us because we're rebuking him. And when we find ourselves rebuking Jesus, it's because we have failed to deny ourselves. We've failed to follow him. We, we, we've lost sight of what it means to lose our life so that we could gain life. We've fallen out of line of, uh, of, of God's will. Maybe not real far. Maybe we're just right on the edge. But Jesus is certainly through the Holy Spirit going to try to correct us rebuke us and say, hey, 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 that ain't what we're about. That ain't what we do. That ain't the will of God. Don't you thank God for the word, his word, the Bible, and his Holy Spirit within us? And together they work as a team to keep us in his will. And when we get out, start getting out of his will or start moving on one side or the other too far, the Spirit of God will tap us on the shoulder and say, no, no, that's not God's will. That's not what God wants. That's not who we are. That's not how we react. 
That's not how we love people. Let's do something different. And we get the opportunity to rebuke the, the, the temptation that comes up and say, no, I'm going with God. And we get back in line. Or if it's too late, we can what? Repent. We can repent because God's grace is amazing. That, that's going to be chapter eight. Whoever's ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous, sinful generation, the son of man will also be ashamed of him. That, that should uh, be on your mind in your prayer time a lot. And I don't mean that because of anything I think about any of you. I just mean that because we all need to be sure that we're talking to God. It's like, Lord, I don't want to be, I don't want to find myself ashamed of you ever. I don't want to find myself like Peter later, like Peter was. I don't know Jesus because the pressure was on. The sufferings were coming. Because I'm like him and I'm walking like him and I claim to be a Christian. And I don't want to be caught in that moment where I say, yeah, I don't, I don't read the Bible. I don't know God. I'm, I don't go to church. I'm not a Christian. Because if that's the case and that's really how it is in our heart, we're going to stand before God one day and, and, they're going to, and he's going to say, I don't know you. Get away from me. I don't know who you are. And if that doesn't get your attention, then um, I don't know what will. Chapter 9, Jesus is going to do something else amazing, the transfiguration. He's going to basically show his holiness to some of the fellas. It's going to be awesome. Keeping in mind that even though, even though Peter runs his mouth a little bit too much and gets himself in trouble a lot, Jesus has a lot of patience for him. And I like to think that Jesus would do the same for us if we were in his shoes. I'm pretty sure that God has a lot of patience. God has the, the right amount of patience because... I'm pretty confident that I'm a problem child in the kingdom of God. And I take a lot, I need a lot of grace. So just kind of keep those things in mind. And, and maybe, maybe our prayer concerns for the rest of this week and on into the rest of our lives is that we would just continue to ask the Lord to help us to be aware of whether or not we're living in his will or are we rebuking him for anything. Uh, pretty important. Let's pray together and we'll finish. We'll start with chapter nine next time. Lord, we love you and we thank you for tonight. And I thank you for the word. I thank you for the examples that we can see throughout the history and the life of Jesus and the disciples. And Lord, we just thank you for your grace and your mercy. And we thank you for the gospel, the truth, the, 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 the plan, your master plan of salvation. Help us, Lord, to stay in, in, in line with that. Stay in, in your truth. Seek your will and live in your will. Help us to be those who are... Uh, faithful in, in, in taking steps of faith when we don't understand, when we're confused, when we uh, seem to be off track and don't really, uh, maybe it's a little foggy in our life. Lord, help us to trust your word and trust your spirit in us. Help us to never find ourselves in a place of rebuking you or speaking against your will. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for it all, and it's in your grace. In your, in, in, in your son's name we pray. Thank you for tuning in with us at a Bible study with Archie Gilmer. If you have any questions or comments, please email me at agilmer.ogcc18 at gmail.com. Again, thank you for joining us, and we hope that you join us again at a Bible study with Archie Gilmer.